turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. People today experience all kinds of fears, anxieties, and worries. We've seen this particularly the last few years. Even very opposite fears playing against each other on the societal stage. Crippling fear of disease and death versus a crippling fear of tyranny, government overreach. Within that wider societal matrix of fear, there's the common fears that we all tend to experience, which really have seemed to just grow worse. Social anxieties, fear of death and illness, fear of close relationships, worry about societal collapse and economic ruin, fear of poverty, fear of what others will think of us, fear of failure, fear of persecution, anxieties about wars and conflicts, you name it. We experience fear as human beings. And if you're listening to certain voices, like the voice of social media, it will tell you repeatedly there are many things to be afraid about in the world. Who doesn't struggle with some kind of fear, some kind of anxiety, some kind of worry in life? No one. These are common emotions. But God's purpose for us is that we should not live on in fear and anxiety and worry, but rather that we should turn from these and find a life of peace and joy and trust in God. Over and over throughout the Bible, we have the gentle reassuring command, do not be afraid. And that's not a hammer that he hits people over the head with. Stop being afraid. Stop being anxious. It's a gracious invitation to enjoy God's peace, which surpasses all understanding. We have examples in scripture of people just like us who experienced fear, but then they moved from fear to faith and trust. And that's what we want to look at this morning. One of the most vivid examples. We could bring many examples out of this life. This one man, David, in the Old Testament. Look with me at Psalm 56 here. This is one instance of David and his fears, but putting his trust again in the Lord. Just to sketch the background of the psalm, we have to understand that the subscription in front of this psalm at the very top gives us some historical data. It tells us, first of all, the author is David, and it also tells us the situation he was in when he wrote this psalm, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, it says. And so this brings us back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And at that time, David was fleeing from Saul. You know that King Saul was pursuing David, trying to kill him. David fled to numerous places, Ramoth, then Nioth, then Nob, all of these places not too far from Jerusalem. The passage in chapter 21 tells us that after he was in Nob, and Do uh, Saul had an informant there, Doeg the Edomite, who saw David. David fled to Gath as something of a refugee, looking, looking for safety in a foreign nation. Those cities belonged to the Philistines. And so David comes to this city and he comes to the king of Gath, the king of the Philistines. And he's looking for a refuge. 
But Achish's servants had heard about David. They heard even the song that the people of Israel liked to sing about David. That Saul has slain his thousands, but King David his tens of thousands. And so hearing that, David was now afraid. And it says in verse 12 there, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He feared because he now was seen as a threat by the Philistines. So we know the rest of the story. He changed his appearance. He acted like a crazy person. He scratched on doorposts and drooled all over his beard, and it worked. They deemed him a crazy man. They let him go away. He fled, and he came to this cave at Adullam. This was a closed-in place, a cave where he could find refuge. So David was safe for a while there. But we see in the psalm that David had an even greater place of refuge to hide in, which is God himself. As we look at this psalm, the, the structure of it is striking. David goes through these cycles. Really, there are two cycles here where David brings his fear to God and then he finds trust in God. And then he does that again. He brings his fears to God and he finds trust in God, which then leaves him fearless. And after doing that twice, in verses 12 to 13, it comes to a crescendo of thanksgiving. So we want to look at this in two large parts. God brings his fears. Well, what, what makes us fearful? And then as David trusts in God, how do we find this fearless trust that David found as well? Number one here, what makes us fearful? We see this in verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6. David comes to God in verse 1. He says, be gracious to me, O God. He's asking for God's grace and mercy, God's gracious favor and help in the midst of what makes him afraid. And we see that there were attackers. He had threats against him. Man tramples on me, he says. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. The attack he continues to describe in verses 5 to 7. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, and they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape, in wrath cast down the peoples, O God. So David was being trampled, he was being oppressed, he was being attacked by these people. Saul, Doeg, now the Philistines potentially, were all after him. These were not just men trying to hurt David with words either, but they wanted to snuff out his very life. These were people who would or could do him real harm, real threats, real dangers. David was on the run just dealing with all the trauma of having Saul throw spears at him and being after him. Can you imagine being in that circumstance, being attacked with such severity, these threats around him? We see that they were a constant threat all day long, he says, Two times in the first section there, verse 1 and verse 2, you see that all day long. Verse 5, you see it again, all day long. To be constantly pursued like that, what a huge burden that would weigh someone down. And we see that they were evil threats. Verse 2 says they were attacking him proudly. It's pride and arrogance motivating these attackers. 
And also in verse 5, it says, all their thoughts are against me for evil. It was out of evil desires that they pursued King David. We know Saul was a jealous and angry man and despised God's purpose to make David king in the place of him. And he was filled with an evil spirit. The spirit of God departed from him. He was filled with this harmful spirit and he sought to kill David with this murderous intention. David really had pure evil breathing down his neck, a truly satanic attack. So how terrifying to be in his situation. We see that they were conniving threats as well. He says in verse 6, they lurk, they watch my steps, they have waited for my life. They were like hunters watching David through the scope from afar, ready to fire at him. They were like trappers ready to snare him in a cage. David was not just paranoid. There were really people after him wherever he went. So he had to flee from place to place to place, getting away from these people. Now, I doubt any of you have been in exactly David's situation. Perhaps some of our brothers from their country have felt something like this. I know there's tribal warfare and very evil people going to and fro in some of those countries. And so Guillaume had to flee from his country and go to Kenya. We don't know that kind of attack and that kind of threat that is so vicious and constant. But still, David's fears can act as an encouragement to us because we can identify with something of his experience. And even the fact that he experienced more than perhaps we will ever experience is an encouragement to us because even in that intensity, we'll see he was able to put his trust in the Lord. And what is more is that King David is a type of Christ and he points us to a greater king, King Jesus, the son of David, who is also constantly oppressed and attacked and pursued by evil and eventually put to death upon the cross And yet he kept entrusting himself to the Father and was strong and courageous. Really, Jesus became troubled because he faced the most terrifying reality none of us will ever face, the whole cup of God's wrath. And he was intensely troubled in the garden, Mark 14, 33. Yet again, he trusted and he did the Father's will. Knowing that someone else has been there, even that our Savior has been there, that's a great comfort. We're not traveling a path that no one has ever traveled. We're not cutting through brush for the first time. At the beginning of verse 3, David says, when I am afraid. This is a common experience, isn't it? And he doesn't say, if I am ever afraid. He says, when I am afraid, and literally there in the Hebrew, it's the day I'm afraid, the day I'm afraid. We all have days where we're going to get afraid, where we're going to deal with anxieties or worries, these fears that come up. Even if you don't think you're struggling with fear, most of us are operating on fear to a certain degree at all times without even realizing it. But what is fear ultimately? It's an emotional and physical response to real or perceived dangers or threats 
to ourselves or the things that we love. Elise Fitzpatrick, who has written a great book on fear, anxiety, and worry, says, fear is a felt reaction to perceived danger. When we perceive a threat, perceive a danger, whether or not that perception is true or not is another question, but we feel threatened or we feel that something we love, that we cherish is threatened, then we feel fear. And there are various kinds of fear, aren't there? There are natural fears. Sometimes our fears are just a natural response to what is truly terrifying. I think David here falls in that category. Who would not experience some fear in this circumstance? Someone's trying to kill you. Someone's after you. If you, if you meet a grizzly bear in the forest, you're going to be afraid, rightly so, so that you can run from it. Your fear in that case is a physical response that will hopefully drive you to safety. And so some fears are quite understandable. But even in those types of understandable fears, Scripture shows us that we can find peace in Him. And that's where He wants to bring us. That's where He leads us. A complete trust, even in understandable fears. There are sinful fears. Often times our fears are overtly sinful. We fear and have anxiety and worry because of heart idols, things that we cherish above God immoderately, our sinful desires. And it may be more or less simple or difficult to identify why we are afraid. But if we're in tune with God's standards of holiness, then we'll see that we are sinfully fearing in those circumstances. There are irrational fears. Sometimes we fear things that are really needless. To any rational, well-adjusted person, they might look at us, see us in our anxiety, and wonder why. why. Why are you afraid? But still we fear, and we feel like we can't help it. But these are often pointers, again, to our sinful desires and idols. Sometimes there are righteous fears. Some fear is actually good and commanded by Scripture. The fear of God. This affectionate reverence for the most holy God and a desire to obey Him in fear and trembling. The fear of sin and its consequences. Fear of even going towards sin or false teaching. That's a fear commended by Scripture. There's also an appropriate reverence for others, which is a type of fear, especially authority figures. But there are different levels of fear too, aren't there? Sometimes fears live deep enough under the service. We don't notice them so much, but they are motivating us to a degree. Sometimes fears become crippling and we start to avoid things or seek control of things because we're afraid. Maybe it even leads to explosions of anger because we're trying to control and other people are getting in the way and that leads to more and more sin. These fears tend to harass us. Sometimes fears explode in uncontrollable outward bodily reactions, panic attacks. These kinds of fears may lead you to the point where you think you're even going to die. What fears, anxieties, or worries do you struggle with, I wonder? Some people, when asked the question, could immediately identify areas. Others may need more probing to see areas where you fear. And the scriptures help illuminate these things. Scriptures talk about things like the fear of man. 
How many of us deal with that, struggle with that? A love of the approval of others, a desire to look good in their eyes, and a fear of what they think and might do if we're not acceptable in their eyes. We exalt then people to a position of God, who we are to love and serve and please alone. But we compromise as a result of these fears. We don't share the faith. We don't evangelize. We stick with the status quo of the world. We become worldly as we go along with this fear of man. So you're concerned about what others think of you. Some people, like myself, many times deal with social anxieties. Thinking too much about what people around you are thinking. About what you're saying, what you're doing. Maybe that leads you to avoid those things altogether like a turtle hiding in its shell. Maybe it actually leads you to disguise yourself like a chameleon. So you put on a face and outwardly you look like you're doing well and you're fitting in. But really inwardly you're full of anxiety. That's a fear of man. Some people struggle with the fear of the future. Full of worries about what's going to happen. What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? We can sometimes drive ourselves crazy just imagining scenarios that will probably never come to pass because none of us are omniscient like God. And he's told us that he is in control. He has decreed all things, not us. So we're to trust him even if difficult circumstances may come our way. Perhaps some of you deal with fear for your family. Some people are so nervous about what may happen to their children or their spouse or more distant relatives. Lie awake at night when the teenage daughter is out at a friend's house. While a certain level of concern about the safety and well-being of others is good, it shows a love for them. It quickly becomes immoderate when we don't trust God with it. Perhaps that leads you also to tighten control of your family. Become a helicopter parent. Don't let them go out and do things because... You're too afraid of what may happen. Some people deal with the fear of failure. So afraid of failing that they never take steps forward in life and learn new things. Maybe you give up a good job or a relationship because you're just afraid it'll end in disaster, which perhaps you've already seen again and again in your life. Or perhaps this fear mixed with pride drives you to seek to control everything so that it won't fail since you, of course, are a perfect captain at the helm of your ship and you get angry at others who may threaten that success fear of failure there's a fear of judgment even people who are saved sometimes fall back into this slavish fear of God's wrath and judgment not grasping the free gift of salvation by God's grace or perhaps it really is that you're living on in sin you're unrepentant and so you're racked with guilt This can sometimes even drive people to bizarre behavior. Sometimes schizophrenia is even caused by severe feelings of guilt. Perhaps you're in a false religion that keeps you enslaved to rituals because you think that you must do anything possible to assuage God's wrath against you. And so you're living in fear rather than freely under the love of God. Many people deal with the fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 talks about this. How Christ came to defeat the devil who has the power of death and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
The devil keeps people enslaved to sin through the fear of death. People are terrified to die. And so they desperately try to cling to this life, this world, have all the pleasure they can in it now. But Christ delivers people like that. There are, of course, many different fears that people deal with. We've probably just scratched the surface. But we recognize that these things are not good. They keep us in a place that we don't want to be. They keep us from experiencing the peace of God. And so what is the way forward in these things? How do we move from fear to faith? From being fearful to being fearless? Well, how does David do it? Look at verse 3 again. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. This is such a simple verse, but it gives us really the main principle. Dealing with fear, anxiety, worry, whatever kind it is. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. This is what David does. He puts his trust in God. David experiences this fear come up within him gives it to God. David did not need to look within himself for more strength in these situations. He didn't need to merely confront his fears and do them a number of times. He didn't need to be empowered by self-esteem, someone just rallying beside him saying, you got this King David. He could not look anywhere else really on the earthly plane for help. Even his best friend Jonathan couldn't help him. Though he was a good man and full of faith, he had to go Godward in his direction. The little word in, in this verse, in, it means even to or towards or into. So you see that David was going towards God, looking away from himself and above his fears into God, towards God. That's where we need to go. See, in all these troubles, in all our fears, all our anxieties, we need to see that there's a God above this. That these things are actually so small in comparison with the God who is enthroned forever. He goes to God and he says, you, I put my trust in you. See, David had a personal relationship with God. And without that, you really cannot be freed from these fears and anxieties. You need to say to God, I and you, I put my trust in you, the God that I know. And in verse 10, David will use God's personal name, Yahweh, the Lord. And so he knows who this God is, this eternal God, this God of Israel, this personal God who saved the people of God. He knows God as his powerful Savior. And so he puts his trust in him. Now, how do we actually do that? What does it actually mean to put our trust in God? I say it involves at least two things here. First of all is reminding ourselves of God's truth. Reminding ourselves of God's truth is necessary for putting our trust in God. Notice how David says in verse 4, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he repeats that in verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. 
He wants us to understand this is the God whose word he praises. David evidently was in the word of God. He was meditating upon the word as he was praying this prayer to God. Because in the word of God, we see many praiseworthy things about our God. We see praiseworthy truths. We're reminded of the truth about life. The truth about all those things that we fear. The truth about God's properties and promises that combat our fears. If we are to trust in God, we first need to know about God from his word. And we need to believe what he has said about himself in his word. And so David is meditating upon the word and he's praising God in his word, reminding himself of the truth of God. We see a couple specific things that David reminds himself about God in verse 8 and 9. In verse 8, we see the truth that God cares for you. God cares for you. Look at this. It says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God had a loving care and concern for David. And if we are likewise the people of God like David, God cares for us. God, like a secretary, keeps track of the minutes of our lives. Like an accountant, he knows the exact number of our tossings or our miseries. And he keeps our tears, as it were, stored up in his bottle, in his water skin. He knows all the number of our tears and miseries. Every legitimate and illegitimate fear, he knows. He's meticulous in his watchfulness over us. He keeps count. Obviously, God does not have a literal book in heaven. But this is a way to speak of God's omniscience. He knows everything about us. He knows what's going on in our lives, and he cares. He is intimately acquainted with these things. And even in David's situation, these attackers attacking him and causing him troubles and tossings and tears, God was counting those things up so that he might repay David's enemies. So you see God's care for David and for you here. Jesus Christ reminds us of these same truths when he talks about fear and anxiety. I'll have you flip for a moment to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. And then we'll look at Matthew 10 as well. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? There's a good truth right there to remind ourselves. Life is more than these things that we worry about. They're really small when, when we look at them in the grand scheme of things. But then he says in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? See, birds don't have savings accounts, do they? And so even God feeds them, even though they're, they're even having to get their daily food from his constant provision. And we're of more value 
than these birds of the air. In other words, God cares for us so much more than those birds. And so he'll give us everything that we need. He says in verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Sometimes we get into this cycle where we, we think we're somehow solving things by just repeating the same thoughts, the same anxious fears over and over and over again. That really gets you nowhere in life. In fact, it probably takes years off of your life, not, not adds them to your span. Verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, if God shows such care for even these flowers of the field, they grow without working for it, they are beautiful, God will clothe us as well. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The middle of verse 32 there is so important. Your heavenly Father. If you are a child of God, God cares for you as your Father. And he will provide everything that you need. He knows exactly what you need, even better than you do. And so he can give that to you, and he will, as you seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, as you put your priorities in the right places, lay these worries down. And notice at the end of verse 30 there, Jesus includes this gentle rebuke. He says, oh, you of little faith. See, faith is the key there, which we're about to see, which we are seeing. David is putting his trust, his faith in God. The solution to all of this is more faith to see who God is and trust in him. And so we see this truth that God cares for you. God cares for me. God cares about all of our tossings, everything that's going on in our lives. And this answers all of our fears with regard to the circumstances of life. We don't have to fear what will happen in our future, what will happen in our family, what will happen if we share our faith and live different than the world. Our loving Heavenly Father is watching over us to give us everything that we need. And if he has a record, he will also set the record straight. And so we can trust him, put vengeance into his hands as David does in verse 7. Verse 9 gives us another truth. God is for you. God is for you. God cares for you. God is for you and for me. He says here, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. David trusted that God was on his side, not against him. He trusted that he was in God's battle here, that he was on the right side of history, that God was his good general who fought with him and for him. So David knew he would be delivered from his enemies as he called upon the Lord. He actually repeats that same word that he used 
in verse 3, here in verse 9. In the day, the day when I call, my enemies will turn back. They'll turn tail and run. He knew that God would ultimately deliver him from all these attackers. Friends, at this point, we need to remember that our enemies are not flesh and blood necessarily. See, our enemies are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But if God is for us in this way, if we are his people, he fights for us. As we've seen in the book of Joshua, continually, God attends our lives with his almighty help and power as we trust in him, as we put sin to death, as we engage in spiritual warfare. We don't need to worry that God will turn away from us. God will condemn us or abandon us. God is for us. Here we need to use gospel logic, what I'm calling gospel logic. We need to reason from the very cross of Christ to God's deliverance in our lives, his deliverance from our fears. We need to say things like, if Christ died for me, then God is for me. And so he will deliver me. This is gospel logic. If the father sent his only begotten son for me, then he must love me more than I could ever imagine. And if he loves me so much, then he certainly intends my good. This is the same kind of thing Paul does in Romans 8. If God so graciously gave up his son for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He'll sustain us. He'll preserve us. He will deliver us to the end. And even if we are attacked and afflicted, God means to use it in some way to bless us for our ultimate good. See, David did experience much affliction. Christ experienced much much opposition and persecution. We are told that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Psalm 34, David reflects on actually the exact same experience. And he says this in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. But then later in verse 19, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We are not promised an easy life as Christians. There will be afflictions. There will be difficulties. There will be suffering. And yet there is always a deliverance from it. Either within that, that God attends us with his comfort and peace. And he is working godliness in us. Delivering us in those ways. And ultimately that he will deliver us from all our pain, all our suffering when we are raised from the dead, just as Jesus himself was delivered from death. Psalm 34, verses 20 to 22, reflects even on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it encourages us as well. It says, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. God ultimately totally redeems us and never leaves us to be condemned. And he shows this even 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we know, even saints who are beheaded come to life and reign forever with Christ, as Revelation 24 says. So friends, we must remind ourselves of truths like this. God cares for me. God is for me when we're going through these things and put our trust in him that way. Isaiah 26, 3-4 says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. When our minds are stayed on him, and the truth about him that we see in his word, we can be freed from our fears. But the second thing we need to do in putting our trust in God, we remind ourselves of the truth, but we also pray or cast our burdens on God. This is actively putting our trust in God with prayer. And prayer really is simply talking to God. We talk to him. We cry out to him. We call to him in the midst of our fears. We tell him about our fears. And we ask him for help and deliverance. This whole psalm is a prayer like that. God, David tells God about his fear and all the details of it. He lets every fear and request be known to God. Just as Psalm 62 verse 8 also says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That's part of putting our trust in him is pouring our heart out before him. And not just halfway. Not not just leaving some fears swirling around in there. But all of it. Pour out everything to the Lord God in prayer. God wants us to bring all our fears and burdens to his throne so that he can be the one who helps us. Hebrews 4 says that since we have a sympathetic high priest, Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Philippians 4, 6-7 gives us this principle as well. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you known that peace? I know I have. But it comes through prayer. It comes when you give everything to the Lord and ask him for things, supplicating, that's what that is. We, we ask him for help and we give thanksgiving as well for everything in life that we can see to be thankful for, even in our fears, even in the troubling circumstance. We give everything to God. We make our requests known to him. So often we run to other people and make our complaints known to others. We open our mouths and we, we vent But you know you can vent to God. You can actually bring your requests to him. Your complaints even as it were to him. That's what we are to do. Even Jesus did this while on earth in the flesh. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death And he was heard because of his reverence. So when reverence were to go to God with even loud cries and tears, asking 
for what we think we need. This is what scripture also calls casting our burdens on God. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 1 Peter 5, 7, a similar verse. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's that truth again. God cares. God knows and he cares. So cast all these things, all the anxieties upon him. David here even casts his burden on the Lord a couple times. Sometimes maybe we need to do this repeatedly until we find that lasting peace and praise. He voices his fears a couple times here and then resolves to trust in God. Fears arise again. He does the same thing. This is a constant life of prayer that we need to have with God if we are to live courageously and fearlessly as David did. So this is how we put our trust in God when we're afraid. We remind ourselves of the truth about God from his praiseworthy word and we pray casting those burdens on him. I know it seems very simple, but that's the life of simple faith. And what's the result of it? David says here, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he repeats that in verse 11. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? When we have reached the safe harbor of trust in our loving and powerful God, none of the waves of fear can sink our ship. Even with fierce enemies breathing down our neck, we can say, I shall not be afraid. David could even say in Psalm 3:6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why can he say that? Because he's putting his trust in God. Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So with such a refuge, such a shield, such a cave of Adullam, as it were, with such a God to trust, what can man really do to us? If we are trusting in the sovereign Lord who cares for you, who is for you, what can man do to you? Only what God permits by his sovereign will. And even in that, he will give you everything that you need. Again, this does not mean life will always be easy or that we won't suffer in ways or be oppressed or alienated from people. But in the midst of those things, we have deliverance through trust in God. And ultimately, he will deliver us from every evil deed and bring us into his heavenly kingdom, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. Friends, I want to take you again to Romans chapter 8. And I seem to go to this passage so often. It's this high point in scripture. It's like a mountain peak that all these other truths and passages kind of come to the, the foot of this mountain. As Paul explains just the indomitable love of Christ for us. Romans 8, I'll read starting in verse 31. I'll back up actually to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Christian, what are you afraid of? What can man or anything at all do to you? God is for you. He cares for you and he will deliver you. If you trust in Christ's love, how can you ever be condemned? If God is your father, how will he not provide for you? If you are separated from all other comforts in life and you still have the love of Christ which is your cave of Adullam, you have everything. We have a God who is a refuge, a shield, and a deliverer. Whatever your fears are, even if they seem insignificant, even if they are irrational, you can bring them to God like David. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Remind yourself of the truths about God and his gospel. And if Christ died for you, how will he not bear you through this? You don't need to fear man when you're truly accepted in Christ. You don't need to fear the future when the God who loves you has decreed it already and said it will work out for your good. You don't need to fear for your family because God holds them in his hand just like he holds you. You don't need to fear failure if Christ has died for all those things already. You don't need to fear judgment if you're a believer in Christ because Christ has already paid for that sin. You don't need to fear death. Whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life. Though you die, yet shall you live. And you can know that because Christ already raised himself from the dead. If he can raise himself, he can raise you also with him. So you do not need to fear. Do not be afraid. Only trust. Believe the truth. And pray and trust. And when you're done with your fear, like David does at this, the end of this psalm, we return to God in praise. 
We perform our vows to God. We render thank offerings to him that he deserves for delivering us, delivering our souls from death. You're a Christian. Your soul has been delivered from the tyranny of Satan, the slavery of sin, death itself. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You're to praise him for this. You're to praise him for every time he keeps your feet from falling over obstacles, over oppressors, over attackers. You're to praise him for the eternal life you have, the light of life that you walk in as a believer in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have not found peace in God yet, then run to Jesus Christ because he indeed is the only refuge outside of that solid rock, apart from the help of the Spirit, there is no true and lasting peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace, and he gives peace with God and peace with man and peace within, and he made this peace by his blood shed on the cross, paying for our sins to reconcile us to God, and he offers this peace. Scripture says he came to preach peace, peace, peace to the far and to the near, and I will heal him. That's God's promise to you. He will heal you from your sins and give you peace. But he also says, there is no peace for the wicked. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. If you live on in your wickedness, there is no peace for you. That is the way of turmoil, inner turmoil, relational turmoil, and eternal turmoil under the judgment of God. Many are living in constant fear and anxiety today. Just look at how much talk there is in our society about mental health. Look at how many people take medication for anxieties. But friends, there is true freedom and peace in Jesus Christ. Freedom from those fears that tend to enslave you. You're to come to him. You're to lay your sins and fears at his feet, casting those burdens upon him, putting your trust in him, believing in Jesus Christ as the only one whose blood is powerful enough to dissolve all your sinful fears. He is strong enough to bear them. He is a mighty savior. Know that you would find your peace in him today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that what we learn here, we would truly put into practice in our lives, God. That we would be able to live fearless, courageous, not fearing anything that is frightening. God, because we are stayed upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.